the most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Right, the poetry thing. Will it go down like a an unflying thing? We'll give it a go anyway. Uh, it's, it's getting some support as an idea. C.K. Stead reads a couple of his famous poems. He gets two because he's C.K. Stead. He's a legend. If you haven't read his stuff, do. Go and get uh, My Name Was Judas. What a fantastic book. And he's a great poet as well. Poetry doesn't get much of a look in, really. So, um... We'll be doing that. Some luminaries and ordinary people. Feel free to email or Facebook your suggestions for a great poem. You don't have to be famous to be part of this thing. In fact, I am hoping that if Fitter and Turner from Teatatu uh, might just turn up uh, with the great regaling of why the poem is good. That is really the question. That's going to be kicking off next week uh, on a Sunday. Just on the poetry side of things, I don't think I'll be able to rope him in uh, very quickly. But the good thing is I have John Cooper Clark in the can. And what a great poet he is. Um, you don't, don't look down your nose at people like John Cooper Clark and the beat poets. If, if you're an academic, don't look down your nose at Banjo Patterson, who I think is cracking as well. You know, T.S. Eliot's wonderful, but there's nothing wrong with Banjo Patterson. There's nothing wrong with John Cooper Clark. I'll play a bit of a John Cooper Clark song, one of my favourites. He's just such a wonderful misanthrope. Someone who has grievances with the human race, or some members of the human race, shall we say. Uh, this is a thing called I Don't Want to Be Nice. Keep listening after about one and a half, two minutes. You'll have a beautiful John Cooper Clark bonus. Basically, uh, outlining what we're going to be doing, doing exactly the sort of thing that we're going to be doing next Sunday. But it's John Cooper Clark, so here we go. I don't want to be nice. There he comes now. I don't want to be nice. God, I love that. How did you get that sound with the production? Because it's got a really, really great sound. Yeah, it's pretty good, that. It was a real one. That one was, I remember, was a real, like all the best ones. I mean, I don't really like, I'm not that keen on the stuff that I did with music, to be honest. But uh, 
you know, but it has its moments, and that's pretty good. It's a good riff, isn't it? I think we were going for a... Uh, it's kind of... It's the same notes as uh, Double Barrel by Dave and Ansel Collins, if you know that one. Do you know that one? No. Thinking I ain't a bad... I'm not a bad singer, me. I can carry a tune, you know what I mean? Mm. I used to go around. And I wasn't ashamed to burst into song wherever I went. And then I got a tape recorder and listened to what I actually sounded like. Um. God, that was the... That was the most miserable day of my life. But you've grown into find, it now. Find, finding out that I couldn't say, you know, that, is that, do, do I really say, Why didn't you tell me I sounded <laughs> like that when I said I would never have opened my f***ing mouth. When did you first have a lash at writing poetry? Can you remember what your poems were like? Uh, yeah, they were very 19th century in flavour, you know, as they still are, I think. You know, we, we, uh, we used to read from a... At school, we used to read from a, a textbook called Palgrave's Golden Treasury, which featured stuff, where, you know, by W.H. Auden. That was the most modern stuff that was in it. But, but beyond that, it was people like uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, Lord Byron, uh, Percy Shelley, Christina Rossetti, you know, proper old school. Oh, yeah. Coleridge. Yeah, Coleridge, especially Coleridge. Yeah, yes. yeah. Tell You Else was a big one, a big influence on me, and, and uh, I'm not ashamed to say it, uh, Edgar Allan Poe. I got into him because the first, uh, the first uh, adults-only movie I ever lied about my age to, to watch on, in the cinema was The Fall of the House of Usher, starring the inimitable Mr Vincent Price. There'll never be another. And uh, he did a whole series of Roger Corman movies based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Nice. And this was the most frightening moment of my life, so, you know, watching that movie. You know, I, 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 was, I came out and I was terrified, you know what I mean? And, uh, and then, but then I got into reading his, his works, you know, and he, of course, they were all short stories. Stories, really, yeah. you know, and uh, and I, 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 you know, I started reading his poetry, and it was very mathematically the precision of the of the of the the uh, the meter of them was just like irresistible to me. Nice. And then I, and then from there, you know, from reading Edgar, I read somewhere that uh, it, that Charles Baudelaire was his great champion in uh, in France at the time, and uh, and had actually translated his work into French. So then I became interested in the work of Charles Baudelaire, and uh, between all those factions, you know, those are the things that kind of made me want to be a poet, and uh, you know, that's the stuff I liked. Obviously, I'm the greatest living poet so uh, all the time. I'm Have you, you turned down poet laureateship? Well, I've never been asked. I'm, I'm not holding my oh, breath not? That. That's not going to happen, is it? You well, know why I mean? not? John Bitchman. Oh, I suppose he's all right. You know, John, I mean, John was great, though, wasn't he? But he wasn't a dangerous no. Republican revolutionary like me. You know, I'm not going to offer it to him. No, actually. But speaking of which, right, let me tell you, this is a good story. True story. Andrew Motion, right? Forever, people have been saying, "Why well, come you're not poet laureate?" Like you know, that question comes up a lot. But I should have been because uh, I was in Paris in the days when when the tenure was occupied by uh, Andrew Motion. I was in Paris, and on the cover of Paris Match magazine was a was a, a photograph of the late uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and I, I thought, well, why? Uh, I, why? Why would she be on the cover of a of a, a Republican French magazine? You know, why, they couldn't give her monkeys about the Queen Mother. You know what I mean? So I looked. I thought she must she must have died. 
So I passed it over to, to my wife, who's French, you know, that's the reason why I was in Paris in the first place. And I said, sweetheart, I said, have a look at I suspect the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother's died. So she, she read, uh, yes, yes, she, she's died. She has died, you're right. And uh, so I looked, I leaped, I thought, it must have, so Andrew Motion must have written something about it in verse, you know, I mean, that's what it, that's what the job's, that, that, that's the job description, that's the remit. Yeah, you, yeah. You're, you're required to come up yeah. with the goods whenever something momentous happens within the royal family. Yeah, come on, poet and boy, now's get, the time. Get, exactly, come at the gig, come at the guy, come on, what do you got to say about that? I looked through there, nothing, not, not a f***ing word about the Queen, the death of the Queen Mother. I wish the message was here now so I could get it to vouch for me. But within 30 seconds, I rattled off a little four-liner that completely summed up, went to the heart of the late Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother's appeal amongst the, amongst the, the blue-collar elements of the East End of London. She didn't move to Balmoral when London was being blitzed by the Luftwaffe. So that really engraved her name in the hearts of the East End of London, you know, the people of the East End of London. Nobody would have blamed her if she'd have fucked off. But she hung around and helped out as best she could and all this, you know. So she was the... They loved her in the East End of London, genuine affection for her. But even among elements that might not approve of royalty, they had a soft spot for the Queen Mother. So, bearing that in mind, within 30 seconds I come up with this one. She stuck it out throughout the blitz when lesser mortals got the shivers. A confounded rhyme. A you, single uh, entendre. Econom poetry's economy, about economy. Economy, that's the story of her appeal among yeah. the EastEnders. Yeah. 30 seconds, Graham, that took me. 30 bastard in seconds. Well done. More he, fool them, that's what I say. He needs to hand you that rum he's supposed to get. Because he did nothing. Yeah, a barrel of sherry. Yeah, that's Yeah, hand over that barrel of yeah. sherry and the 75 quid per annum. Hand it over. <laughs> You're not entitled. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. There's something called the Plain English Awards. We covered it last year. It was great fun. And I think it's a worthy thing to do. I was surprised we actually have a Plain English Awards. We spoke with Chris Fortane a little while ago as they got underway, but it's about halfway through the nominations. So, as a reminder, because it, I think it'd be great if people took part. Extolling the virtues of Plain English when you come across it is a great thing. But, of course, there's the big fun category for just brain-meddling rubbish. Uh, the Chief Judge I've managed to rope in this week to tell us how it's going, Ralph Brown. G'day, Ralph. Yes, hello, Graham. How does one find oneself, to sound a bit like the Queen, uh, the Chief Judge of the New Zealand Plain English Awards? Well, I've been doing it uh, for a few years. Um, I'm actually uh, running a, a rival company to the organisers, but uh, we get on well, and, and uh, this is about uh, something for New Zealand rather than a commercial thing. So um, it, it's kind of evolved, and I've got more and more involved and, and enthusiastic uh, as, we've, as we've gone along. Okay, you're a really worthy thing. You're a former TV journalist, and you've written books on writing? Yes, indeed, yes, yes. Uh, TV and uh, a bit of radio and uh, newspapers as well. Okay, we have a direct link to the Plain English carry-on for 2018. There are various... Uh, criteria and things that you can vote for or nominate. What are you looking for to make it plain? In plain English, I'll put you on the spot. 
Okay, well, think of it as the equivalent of plain language. There's nothing fancy about it. It's just ordinary, everyday words, simple sentences, very clear. That's that's what matters most. It's To achieve it, you need to be thinking about your reader's response. Now, most people know what plain English is when they read it. Mm. Delivering it is a different matter. And these days, um, big organisations are employing communications people, often with uh, journalism backgrounds, who've been, been trained in, in doing it. And it looks so easy when you read it, uh, but there's a lot of skill behind it. Uh, right. so we're, look, we're looking for the equivalent of, of plain language, put, put it that way. We're also looking for a few other things. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we, we need to judge the entries on whether they're fit for purpose. So we need to think about what is the purpose of this document and why did they choose to do it and does it achieve uh, that result? But also, uh, how many people would benefit it? So we'll, we'll give... Um, extra points to uh, a document that's going to benefit many New Zealanders. Uh, but there's, there's one other thing that's been very important uh, over the years, and that is uh, how much of a challenge is this document? And uh, previous winners have included the Cancer Society explaining bowel cancer yeah. to uh, to patients and to families. And it takes a lot of diplomacy and, and real skill with the language. So it's, it's plain English with a real challenge. Yeah. Another one we had not so long ago, was the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research economists telling us about international trade disputes and, and uh, the effect on our sovereignty. Well, how many people really want to read that? But actually, it was a very engaging report. You could read it on the couch with no risk of, of falling asleep. That, that's real skill. What are the categories? Uh, well, uh, the, the category I'm involved in most is the, uh, the business document section, but there are sections for... Um, for instance, uh, writing for the web, and that's that certainly requires plain English, but some other skills uh, as as well. Um, we have a, a, a worst uh, examples uh, section as well, so uh, that that's not where the the writers have put the entry in, of course, but uh, where other people have observed. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's that's the point and shame. Okay. Like that. I remember we had one entry, though, um, years ago, and I, I don't think they won't mind saying, but it was actually the Commerce Commission, and they, they were very good. Uh, they, they came up at the awards ceremony and uh, received their rubbish tin, which is the trophy, um, and it was for some something ghastly on their uh, website, and uh, the, the, uh, the Commerce uh, Commission executive came up and said, you ought to see it now. Uh-huh. And uh, they changed things radically, and the next year they won. Nice, because you, you have a prize for best improver, don't you? Hello, Ralph. Ralph, are you there? Uh, yes, indeed. Okay, yeah. I'm just saying that the, the Commerce uh, Commission took it really well and we were thrilled with the way that they turned things around and we just felt that th- there was real value in, in an award like that, although many people might just see it as a source of humour. Mm. Uh, it was actually um, a part of the, the package and incentive for, for institutions to write in ways uh, that everybody can understand. One of the difficulties, I I don't know, you tell me, but I suspect a difficulty in getting really good nominations is when people do write plainly and clearly, you don't notice it. It's like a good referee. That's right. The ideas just just leap off the page and you don't really notice the skill so much. Uh, But we don't have any difficulty attracting entries because uh, we have people 
generally professional writers who are very proud of what they've done, mm. so they'll put in their, their best entry. I have to say the standard is getting better and better. If you're on the, the short list these days, that's worth putting in your CV. Yeah. And if oh, you okay, make yeah. it as a, as a finalist and a winner, that's, that's quite something. The, the standard is, is very good indeed. I often wonder about the headspace. People, I think, have a misplaced idea that writing more fancifully or f what sounds flash is going to come across as better, more intelligent, when yes. it is the opposite, isn't it? It is indeed, and uh, I, I do a lot of training in, in writing, and I've done that in five countries, and I hear much the same uh, arguments regularly. That this is um, dumbing it down. I, I'm, my stuff might go to court, and so I have to write in this particular way. What they're referring to is legalese or commercialese and so on. But there was an interesting study done at, uh, at Princeton University not so long ago that where the, uh, the professor of psychology, Daniel Oppenheimer, gave um, readers uh, various texts and some were complex and uh, inappropriately formal and others were just plain language. And, and he asked the, the readers to evaluate the writers and the readers thought that the, the writers of the, the unnecessarily complex material were less intelligent and less convincing, not more. So it, it doesn't impress anybody. Mm. And I sometimes find that, that that dumbing down argument is really an excuse not to change. Yeah. And I've, I've got to be firm, firm but diplomatic on that issue. And most people come around and they're persuaded by example. So you take something that they might normally write and that, that they've written in some ghastly way and you make a few suggestions. Oh, it's a good try that. Yeah. Okay, yes, all that is better. A road to Damascus moment isn't beyond the realms of happening, too, is it? You, you can carry on thinking you're being flash, and it's, it takes a friend to tell you your fly's undone, too, sometimes. <laughs> well, yes, a bit like that, really. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I'm going to read one out I got this week, and oh, this interview mm -hmm. will probably fall over now, but um, it just came in yesterday, and... It will come as no surprise to anybody. I, I get a lot of uh, PR stuff about things that are happening and someone's available for an interview. I'll, I won't say any more detail other than read out this sentence. This is supposed to give me a better idea of uh, what's happening. The paradigm of what makes up the average Aucklander is being demystified and stereotypes are becoming old hat. Finally, we aim to deliver targeted representative public programming to our community and be part of celebrating the multiplicity of our city. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Ow. Okay. What does that mean? Uh, I kind of get the idea, but they dragged me over cattle stops and a barbed wire fence to get there. It's, it's passive. It's impersonal. It's unnecessarily formal, and it's not simple. No. No. We're doing a thing on poetry uh, in the upcoming weeks, and uh, there's a perception that poetry's fancy-pants language as well. Sometimes it can be, but simpler the better. And uh, <laughs> just, I was so careful in asking these various people who are going to read their favourite poem, or something along those lines, uh, in keeping the, the language plain, I just asked, why is it good? rather than anything uh, more, I don't know, fancy than that. There's nothing weird with the words, nothing wrong with the words good or big. 
Yes, I, I think there's a, a really important under, uh, issue that underlines all, all this, and it's it, it's a thing that keeps me motivated in this this competition. That mm-hmm. while uh, we're talking about plain English, it's not just plain English for the sake of it. This is about justice, yeah. because if you need a law degree or an English degree to understand what your insurance company or you know, or, or a government department is telling you, that's not justice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, now people will be wondering, oh, why can't we have some examples of the nominations this year? They're all under wraps until it's done. Is that right? Hello? Oh, yes, it's all confidential. I know much more than I could possibly tell you. All right. How do we find out? When do we find out? Do we find out what the nominations were? Uh, No, it's at the... uh It'll all be revealed at the uh, ceremony on the 15th of November in Wellington. Okay. How are the various categories fling up? Oh, they've been good. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. There's a lot of interest. And, and the awards ceremonies uh, attract large numbers of um, of competitors, but also uh, people from their organisations and so on. So it's, uh, they're big. Oh, wow. Is it wine and dinner, black tie? Do you have an, is it an event? Can we go? Uh, <laughs> you need to talk to the organisers about that. But okay, no, but is that the not, sort of thing that you do? A... You have an awards ceremony? Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Where is it going to be at? That's a, You need to talk to the organisers about that, but that, that's on November the 15th okay. in Wellington. All right. I'll see if I can get myself a ticket. All right, anything else you want to say about plain English before we move on to Max Cryer, no less, <laughs> on well, the fine. English language? I've always enjoyed uh, Max's uh, comments about uh, about the origins of, of words uh, over the years, so I enjoy that. Oh, um, no, yeah. I just, just want to say that the, the tide has turned on plain English. Uh, the demand around the world is, is for plain language, and uh, big organisations are really getting behind it. And I must say it's, it's, it's been thrilling to see uh, the change uh, just over the last 10 years particularly. Okay. Well, I hope uh, in some small way this is a reminder that this is happening and to help fill up these categories because plain English, yeah, nothing wrong with a round of applause and, of course, there is the fun one. Uh, You've mucked this up badly. Point and shame award, naughty six. So we'll find out all of those on November the 15th. Thank you very much, uh, Chief Judge uh, for, for plain English, Ralph Brown. Cheers. Tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort. Here he is, Max Cryer, and another edition where he answers your questions on words, their origin and meaning. If you want to ask Max something, use the email form on the Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page, or you can mail or Use the, um, e- sorry, Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. You can also ask questions on the Facebook page and the mail address is P.O. Box 8880 Simons Street, Auckland, Max. There's a little bit of housekeeping and we're underway. How are you? I'm remarkably well and better so for being here. Oh, that's nice to hear. Hey, we're doing a th- before we kick off with your thing, um, we're doing a thing on... 
poetry, because poetry hardly ever gets a look in, and we're getting some luminaries, some people for whom poetry has been a big part of their life, and ordinary folk. I hope we end up with a Russell McFadgen panel beater from Teatitu would be nice, with, with his favourite poem. I don't mind who the person is, but it's called Read Me a Poem, and people read their, a poem that they love, and then explain why. And I think it's going to be fun. We kick off with Carl Stead. Oh, well, that's a, that's a pretty high level. I, I think that's the highest we can actually obtain in this country, don't you think? Well, yes, when you say the motor mechanic, you know, from Te Aumutu, yeah. that that's not impossible. There are people, you know, of sort of ordinary stations in life who do have a streak of poetry in them. Absolutely. But if you're going to expect them to, to reach the, the expertise of Carl Stead... No, no, their favourite poem. That's not poems they've Oh, written. I see, their favourite poem. Oh, yeah, that's no, good. Well, not their, a poem they love. Oh, well, that's great. It's impossible no, to say you've favourite poem, really, isn't it? No. Well, it's not impossible, but it would be difficult. Yeah, we won't even go there. It's a poem you love and explain why. I might enter it and I'll send a poem by Wim Wham. No, we'll do it. We'll give you your own special okay. little thing. Okay. How about that? Yeah, but not today, not tonight. Not tonight. No, this is a heads up. Uh, we're kicking off tomorrow night, I think. Are we? Yeah. Anyway, keep your eyes open. Okay. All right, here we go. Uh, the word of the week, Max, is abstainer. Abstain. It it is um, Latin, of course. Ab is Latin for off, and ab tenere. Tenere means to hold, but over time, by the time it got to the 1300s, ab tenere meant not hold, not uh, taking any liquor, and gradually that turned into abstain, which still meant abstaining, not having any liquor, and also abstaining from other things, like abstaining from voting, abstaining from sex, abstaining mm. from a life of crime. And the reason why it came into my notice this week is that during the week, Donald Trump said 12 unexpected words. He said, quote, I never had a beer or any alcohol in my life. And he pointed out that it was only one of his good traits and that he also never had a cigarette. He then asked, can you imagine if I had what a mess I would be? Those are only two of my good things. I don't want to tell you about the bad things. There's plenty of bad things too. Now, we don't know, but I'm guessing Trump had a brother. Well, we, we do know this. Trump had a brother who became a serious alcoholic very serious, died aged 43. He could oh. not be stopped from drinking. And I'm imagining that there's a connection with Trump's own um, theory. So Trump might have one more trick up his sleeve if he wants to talk about his family. He's now sort of revealed that his brother died. But Trump's father's legal name was Frederick Christ Trump. So one day, President Trump might spring on us all that he is actually and really is the son of Christ. I don't know too many whose middle name or first name is Christ, do you? I can't think of any. <laughs> there are a lot of Christophers. Yes, well, you're quite right. Um, it isn't a name originally, of course. It's a Greek term meaning the anointed person. Mm. He who has been anointed. It was added to stories about Jesus. It was never part of his name. Right. Jesus' middle name started with H, didn't it? Jesus H. Christ. Well, so you say. I don't, I don't know the authority for I don't that. Know what it was. <laughs> Harry. Well, uh, you give me your reference one day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much. And where does the word prang come from? Is this like a car accident prang? Yes, exactly. Well, it started in the 1930s as a verb 
to prank something to damage, destroy or wreck and is believed to have evolved amongst the Royal Air Force, um, mainly indicating just the sound of the metal impact when an aircraft crashed. But later it widened to include non-metallic accidents such as he pranged his arm playing football and gradually the verb to prang became a noun. So he pranged his car, that could be what uh, became the car had a prang. Mm. Now, there's no definite answer to the word's origin. It's just the fact that it could be what's officially called onomatopoeia. Do you know about onomatopoeia? Oh, I learned about it, yes. It's very common. It's um, the formation of a word from the sound associated with what you're naming. For instance, the bird who makes a sound like cuckoo or food frying on a hot stove starts to sizzle. Mm. And there has been a suggestion that the word prang has come into English from Malaya, because there is a Malayan word, perang, which means fighting, but I think that's stretching your luck. The general opinion, including mine, is that prang is an attempt at making a word out of the sound of something metallic hitting something stronger than itself. Sounds prang. like it, doesn't it? Prang. Yes, prang. Yeah. Plop. Say that again? Going plops. Plops. That's onomatopoeia, Max. Yes, but that's a sloppy sound. That's a sort of a... But it's exactly. It's Plop. A, I'm just thinking of other onomatopoeic it's things. It's a spoonful of jelly falling onto the tablecloth. Yes. Plop. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, this, this will be fascinating. Um, what does a G-string really mean? I've never even thought about this with this capital G staring at me all these years. Well, it's even more fascinating because of the listener's question. Because the listener wrote saying um, he remembered his mother when she was exasperated. She would say, that gets on my G-string. And she was saying it, according to the listener, 50 years ago. Or no, really? Well, like getting your knickers in a twist. Well, that actually makes slightly more sense. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, while the phrase is recognisable, it isn't all that common as an expression. And 50 years ago, it was even less common, especially since the context in which his mother said it seemed to indicate that she was displeased about something. The earliest use of the term G-string I could find was in America in 1878, spelled G-E-E, -E, and it referred to the loincloth or waist drape worn by the American natives at the time and referred to the whole garment but gradually seemed to refer not to the whole cloth but just the strong waistband holding it in place. It could be that some fiddler in the West compared the heaviest of violin strings, the G-string, to the length of sinew or dried animal gut which the American Indians tied around their waists to hold up their cloths but the cloths were called breech clouts Actually, the heaviest of violin strings wouldn't really be able to hold up that uh, piece of clock that big. Now, the alternative explanation, and they're all speculative, for the use of G to name this garment could be that G was short for girdle and the actual wraparound cloth the natives wore. Um, there are various other explanations. G also is the first letter of the word groin, and it's a rather convincing belief that G by itself was a euphemistic way of saying groin, which was an absolutely indecent word at that time. Groin was, was taboo and was never said in company. Mm. Now, by the 1930s, there came a change, and this is what surprises us. Well, not surprises us, it surprises us about somebody's mother 50 years ago. But by the 1930s, the term had crept into use in striptease shows. 
and was in reportage and advertising 1936 and in that context what was called the g-string was much much smaller than the loincloth which the natives had worn so the term g-string started to appear in magazine reviews and advertisements it referred to tiny little strips of sparkly cloth worn across the nether regions of male and female strip dancers and the American burlesque entertainer Gypsy Rose Lee is popularly associated with the G-string. In fact, she was a very fine writer. In 1941, she published a best-selling detective novel called The G-String Murders, in which strippers were found strangled with their own G-strings. Now, Gypsy Rose Lee's own striptease performances often included wearing a G-string, and it was... And it was known that the g-string she wore was held in place with glue but it's still a delicate matter when the movie industry took a sort of back turn on the on the sort of implication of the word g-string when they were filming tarzan because the tarzan novels edgar rice burroughs books described tarzan as wearing a g-string but in the tarzan films he always wore a modest strip of cloth very much bigger than a G-string. What was on the back side? Or did he just go full hero parade? No, the cloth went right round Tarzan. Oh, OK. So although I can explain a bit of the history about how the term G-string came into use, I'm not able to ascertain why the listener's mother used to say it in the 1960s. It's universal now, isn't it? The term... For that thing, it's a G-string. Yes, yes, for, for that thing, it's universal, but I'm still intrigued about the listener's mother saying it 50 years ago. Yeah. I can only guess that she somehow picked up the saying. It has got a pleasing rhythm, but somehow she didn't realise that it meant a modest little garment much smaller than a bikini bottom. Maybe she thought it referred to an irritating twanging on the G-string of a badly tuned violin. No. That's only a suggestion. Um... Now, it is possible, I've been discovered in my research, that wearing a real G-string too often and for too long can cause irritation in sensitive areas. Never. And I also think, I just throw in for good measure, that a guitar has a G-string. Yeah. So perhaps Mother was referring to the guitar. No. No? No. You don't know? No, it's something up the back crack getting uh, annoying. I've only got the information the listener sent me. Yeah. <laughs> and Gypsy Rose Lee's G-strings tended to be quite large, actually, according oh, to the trend. Okay. Um, Gypsy Rose Lee, you met her? Yes, I did. Um, in her later years, she became much more famous than when she was young because she became a television hostess. She was a very witty woman. She was very um, literate. She wrote very well and she wrote, as, you, as I just said, a couple of good books. But the incident I remember the most about it was when um, we were on a big TV show. She was the hostess of a TV series uh, in San Francisco. And she, there was a moment when at the rehearsal, um, the audience was in place, but Gypsy Rose Lee was waiting to do something or other, and the wardrobe mistress rushed over to her from the wings and said um, she was wearing the wrong... The, the, the skirt was meant for Act 2, not for Act 1, right. and so she'd have to change, and there was very little time. There was only 10 seconds before we were on air. So Gypsy Rose Lee twirled on the spot and stepped out of the skirt she was wearing, and the dressmaker held the other skirt open, and she stepped into it, and went plip, and put it round her waist. The audience applauded, and Gypsy Rose Lee said, it's the first time in my life I've been applauded for putting my clothes back on. 
Nice line. She was a witty lady. Uh, and a lovely rhythmical sounding name. Yes, yes, it wasn't her real name, of course. No, Gypsy Rose Lee. Okay, uh, that is part one. Max Cryer answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. Plenty more to come. And stand by after this commercial break. We'll be right back. The Weekend Variety. Wireless. Here he is, Max Cryer, for the second stanza for October the 6th. I'm sure we'll find out something uh, about the the date later on. You usually do that, don't you, Max? We will, yes. All right. Now, getting back to your questions. Why, a listener asks, do we say for two pins? Um, what do you mean, we, white man? I don't say for two pins. What's this? That's what the listener said in the message. Yeah. For two pins, I would do this or do that. Oh, really? Have you never heard that? No. Really? Back of the class. But then you've had such a sheltered life. That's right. Well, it means as a result, quote, quoting me, for two pins means as a result of very little stimulus for minimum incentive, I will do something or other. It's based on our modern use of the word pin, which generally means something small, easily obtained and not worth much money. The expression must be moderately modern because it is a direct contradiction to the expression pin money, which goes back to the 14th century when pins were very expensive and women were given a special allowance to buy them, and not just pins, but also jewellery and other adornments because in those centuries the word pin also referred to what we would call a brooch. And even though set with diamonds and rubies was still often referred to as a pin. Sometimes a special bequest was left in wills just to provide a beneficiary with money to buy personal items, expensive or not, and that was referred to as pin money. Used in this way, the term lasted until the 1600s, but things change. Gradually, actual pins became cheaper and cheaper, and gradually, apart from wealthy aristocrats with diamond brooches, the term pin money came to mean inconsequential amounts, nothing spectacular, which fits in with something which isn't worth two pins, or for two pins I'd leave this place, etc. So gradually, in general use, the phrase pin money came to mean a small amount of money, which might be earned by children or be low paid for some service, but it no longer is used to mean diamonds and brooches made of pearls. Okay, new to me. I must have missed the memo, um, but it makes perfect sense. I'll endeavour to use that in the future. Well, I should be interested to hear the occasion and see if you get it right. <laughs> A person can be called a hard case. Oh, she's a hard case, or he's a hard case. What do you? What sort of aura do you give out when you say that? What are you sort of inferring about that person? Implying. Yes. Um, I'm implying that they are um, funny, a little bit rough, and um, yeah, humorous in action. Likeable. And likeable. Yes. Well, it, the term comes from Britain, and it has a different meaning there. It has had uh, from what you've just described, which is the perfectly ordinary, normal New Zealand um, use of the term. In British use, the description hard case meant a tough fellow, likely the leader of a criminal gang, known for courage, lack of fear, willingness to defy authority. And it did use, it was used that way in New Zealand too, until the early years of the 20th century, and then curiously, the meaning in this country took an almost complete about-face. 
By the 1920s, the person described as a hard case was no longer a criminal, but was someone that you, Graham, just described. An attractive daredevil, probably quick on the uptake, capable of giving amusement, shrewd without being dishonest. A dag. A dag. Far from being a despised gang leader, in New Zealand, a hard case had become a complimentary term. A lovable rogue. Nowadays, if you describe someone as a hard case, you're doubtless describing someone who is already popular, likeable, a good sport, entertaining, irrepressible, incorrigible and unconventional. Someone who thinks outside the square. Note, not to be confused with a head case. Oh, yeah. Quite a different term, meaning a crazy and unbalanced person. Okay, what is the origin of bling? And bling, I suppose this is meaning uh, shiny, showy jewellery. Well, yes, it does, um, up to a point, but it's got a story, or three stories, in fact. Um, During the 1970s, a brand of toothpaste was called Ultra Bright, and it had a TV commercial campaign with the tagline, Ultra Bright gives your mouth sex appeal and between the words mouth and sex appeal there was a high-pitched bell which sounded over the visual of a young man or woman smiling brilliantly and it wasn't long before comedians seized on what they felt was toothpaste pushing its luck and they began spoofing it in their routines by vocalizing the sound effect into a sound which they called a bling nice invented the name i remember ultra bright it seemed curiously appropriate to the to the sort of what happened on the screen was the sort of flash. What happened to Collie Noss? I don't know what happened to Collie Noss. It still exists, doesn't it? No? Uh, I don't think you can get it in the supermarket. Turkey apparently still uses Collie Noss as toothpaste. I'm very pleased to know that. Mm. Now, explanation number two about bling um, may be related to number one because it's believed that the word was invented to describe the effect of light bouncing off a high-quality diamond. Thus, probably derived from the TV effect of life bouncing off a polished tooth accompanied by a high electronic sound. Now, here's the good one. Explanation three tells that musicians, American musicians in particular, waiting at home for job offers, when the phone would ring, the phone ring was described as bling bling, it meant the possibility of a job, therefore money. And by 1999, the term was immortalised by a New Orleans rock group called cash money millionaires with a recording actually called bling bling and by then the word had settled into meaning the light coming off diamonds or jewelry in general and was immortalized it moved into the mainstream usually as a put down his description referring to jewelry of an extravagant kind which might well be fake but tacky yes but curiously enough that has also become fashionable Mm. i'm told that in some asian countries the cheap and fake shade of connotation has come to replace the term phony so that Rolex watches can be bought in the street and they're called bling Rolex. Right. And I actually know, I have a friend who actually likes fakes and travels quite a bit and does have things like a sort of proudly announced a fake Rolex and a fake this and a fake well, that. Well, that's kind of cool. Yes, it's very, she's a very cool person. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the origin has to be the, the TV commercial with the picture of the diamond and the strange electronic sound. Some forgery paintings are very, very famous for being forgeries and y- they yes. have the same kind of attraction oh, to yes, collectors. Yes. Oh, yes, that's quite true. Some people are quite proud of owning sort of another Mona Lisa. Yeah, oh, but it's that forgery. Ooh. Oh, it was done by so and so, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay. Now we'll look at drop of a hat. Yes. Um, the drop of a hat is really quite simple to explain. It dates back to early America when exhibition fighting occurred, races were run, all without any of the modern formalities or the equipment. There was no electricity. But they had a racetrack or something, wouldn't they? Oh, they had a racetrack, yes, but it, doesn't, it wasn't lit and it didn't have gongs and television coverage and scoreboards. Okay. So the beginning of a fight or a run was signalled by someone throwing down or dropping a hat. It's mentioned in Mark Twain's story, Life on the Mississippi. Waving the hat downwards was a common signal to start the race or dropping it. Nowadays, the phrase remains and indicates that something happens without delay, without fuss, and with very little warning. Now, you did mention that today being October the 6th that something was going to happen, Graham. Mm. And it's actually... Well, I something think, must have happened. Well, it did, and I find it's quite important. In, the, in um, 1869, Captain Cook was sailing the Endeavour, <gasps> and it was still a considerable distance to the east of this country, and the, but the crew started noticing seaweed drifting, and that meant they believed they might be nearing land. Cook promised a gallon of rum to the man who saw it by day and two gallons if he discovered it by night. And further, that some feature of that land would be named after the person who saw it. Now, on the following days, the ship had land birds flying around it, driftwood was seen, and finally, 249 years ago, Today, on the 6th of October, 1769, Joseph Banks wrote in his diary, quote, At half past one, a small boy who was up at the masthead called out land. Luckily, I was on deck and well I was entertained. Within a few minutes, the cry circulated, up came all hands. We came up with it very slowly. Land appeared like an island or islands, but it seemed to be large. End of diary. Later, Cook kept his promise and named the land they saw as Young Nick's Head after the 12-year-old boy, Nicholas Young, who was up the masthead and saw it first. It's always amazing to remember, isn't it, and realise just how young some of these sailors were, 12 yes. years old. This is not an insignificant thing to do on this tiny little ship, is it? Then to, to prove his worth by shinning up a mast. Yeah, you know, that was his job, wasn't he? He was a get-up-there boy. I suppose the smaller you are, the better. And yelling out that he could see land. I if you were as big as Brown Blessed or Davina Whitehouse, you wouldn't, that wouldn't be your job, would it? No, but I think both of those were a little bit older. Mm. Yes, that's absolutely 1869. right. 1869. 1869 on October the 6th. Yes. Thank you. Okay, Max, so just to reiterate, I'm putting you on the spot. You are up for being one of our subjects for Read Me a Poem? Yes, but not today. Not today. Not today. Oh, let's book you in. Fabulous. Max Cryer, thank you so much. Don't forget you can ask Max a question on this subject by going to the Facebook page and just tap, tap, tapping away. Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page. On the web page, Weekend Variety Wireless, you'll just, just Google it. Google will get you there. And there's an email form clearly marked. And the postal address is P.O. Box 8880 Simon Street, Auckland.